You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. semester is that we've been looking at the parables that Jesus told, and I try to think about the best way to describe what parables really are, and the, the best thing that I thought of this week is that parables are like the candy that you get trick-or-treating, or at least you're warned not to get while you're trick-or-treating, that has like razors in it, which may be a disturbing image, but uh, the reason why I think that is like on the surface, when you first look at these little stories that Jesus told, they look like really sweet cute little stories. But then when you get into them, they get really dicey and you find yourself kind of bloody and like don't know what's happening. Uh, the, The parables are intended by Jesus to aggravate you and to disrupt your categories so that you would be forced to come to terms with who he really is and to get your attention. And tonight we're looking at a parable that I think has some razors in it. It's a parable that we we like to talk about the concept of forgiveness, which is what this parable is about. But as you'll see when we get into it, there are razors. So we're going to look at Matthew 18, pick it up in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, that's Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, which in Greek is the word torturers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to each of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray, then we'll consider it together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you meet us poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. And yet you speak good news and you're with us. I pray that... You would draw close to us as we look at this story, as we look at this parable. Would you open up our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts, so that we would see and behold truth and beauty in you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
two hours and 45 minutes east of here, you will find a small town called Mountain City, Tennessee. When I lived in Boone, North Carolina, this was just 10 minutes up the road right across the border. And in January of 2012, there was a man that was arrested there for killing two people. Double homicide. And you find out after he was arrested that the reason why he killed these two people was uh, because they had unfriended or defriended his daughter on Facebook. And he felt that was such a violation of his family that he took vigilante justice upon himself and murdered the two of them. The November before that, November of 2011, in Iowa, there was a woman who was defriended and or unfriended, I don't know how to say it, ex-friended on Facebook by her neighbor. And so she set her neighbor's garage on fire and was arrested for arson. Again, a little cray-cray, but the, the, you know, the instinct is still the same. She felt the sense of hurt, and so she retaliated. Uh, one more for you. The, the month before that, in Texas, so October of 2011, in Texas, a husband physically assaulted his own wife for failing to like one of his Facebook statuses. All true stories. And what do these true stories have in common other than Facebook? They have in common this instinct to retaliate. They all demonstrate this human instinct of when you hurt me, I hurt you. I will settle the score in one way or the other. And it takes you maybe two seconds to honestly think about yourself and to say, I have that same instinct. When people hurt me, I retaliate in maybe one of three ways. For some of you, it's passive, where you just ignore people, snub people, give them like radio silence. It's kind of a passive form of retaliation. For some of you, it's passive-aggressive, where you're nice to their face, but then you kind of drop these comments out of nowhere that kind of feel like kidney shots, or you talk bad about them behind their back. For some of you, it's just all-out aggressive, where you're the one that like throws up the middle finger in traffic, or you're the blaring on the horn, or you're the guy that bows up like in intramural games to like strangers, uh, <laughs> or shouting, or violence, or whatever. Like, whatever it is, your instinct and my instinct, when we're hurt, when we're wounded, when we feel insulted, our instinct is to retaliate. And it takes lots of different forms, and nobody has to train us how to do this. It's just in us. And Jesus is going to demand an alternative reaction from us, a scandalously offensive reaction from us. He's going to say, when you are hurt, when you are offended, when you are insulted, your reaction should be to forgive. And so we're going to look at three ideas from this passage tonight. We're going to look at the necessity of forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness, and then the power for forgiveness. The necessity of it, the cost of it, power for it. First, the necessity of it. If you, if you look at the passage before this, Jesus has been talking about what to do when you're sinned against. And Peter comes up and asks him a really good question. He says, Jesus, how many times when I'm sinned against should I forgive my brother? And the rabbis in the day and age would have said uh, three times. Somebody hurts you, forgive them. They hurt you again, forgive them again. They hurt you again, done. Three strikes and you're out, no mas, we're done here. And so Peter asks this question like, okay, is that true 
what's the line? Because that's a really good question. When you're hurt and you know you're supposed to forgive, but like forgiving somebody, you feel really afraid because it feels like you're giving them a free pass to do it again. And so Peter offers his suggestion. He says, okay, not three times, but what about seven times? Which is clearly his kind of move to kiss up to the teacher and like be the teacher's pet. Because like if the common answer was three, he's like, what if we doubled it and add one? And he's expecting Jesus to say something like, whoa, Peter, you get it. Like, you are the man. You got it. And instead, what does Jesus say in verse 22? Nope, not seven times. Seventy times seven. Which was an expression of the day that just meant infinity. He's saying there is no line. You don't keep score. You don't keep a tally. You just forgive an infinite number of times. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive over and over and over and over and over. Now, before you recoil in antagonism over this and start coming up with these what-if scenarios in your head, let's think about why Jesus suggests that you have to forgive an infinite number of times. Here's why he says forgiveness, you, you have to have this instinct in you to forgive like this, because real relationships are not possible without it. You cannot have real relationships without forgiveness. Think about it. If you want to be a friend with somebody, forgiveness is necessary. Because your friends are going to hurt you. Your friends are going to leave you and go hang out with another friend group and make you feel abandoned sometimes. And your friends are going to go to parties and forget to invite you. Sometimes your friends are going to not invite you or not... uh, Uh, offer for you to be their bridesmaid or a groomsman and you're going to feel hurt by that and you can be angry and kind of blow off the friendship or you can forgive forgiveness is necessary if you want to be involved in a community community like church or even like ruf you're going to have to forgive the people in this room because you're going to come to this room and sometimes it's going to feel clicky and people don't talk to you and you're going to have to forgive us you're going to have to forgive me because i'm going to forget your name even though i've met you 15 times Or we'll sit down and have coffee and you'll share stuff with me that I'll forget later, stuff that I should remember and you'll have to forgive me. Friendship with me requires forgiveness. Involvement in this community requires forgiveness. Uh, If you want to be in a good roommate situation, that requires forgiveness. Because your roommate's sometimes going to flake out on you and screw you financially and throw a party in your living room when you were planning on having like a friend over to watch a movie. And you can be hurt by that and angry by that and make it really weird, or you can forgive. And if you want a good marriage, forgiveness is necessary. Nobody is going to hurt you more frequently and more deeply than your spouse. And you can be angry about it and have a terrible marriage, or you can just forgive over and over and over and over. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you want to have a shot at real relationships, a shot at real intimacy, at real community, forgiveness is just necessary. Now, uh, a quick little um, disclaimer, because the bigger context that Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about relationships really within the church, a tight-knit community. He's not talking about scenarios like, Uh, Should you stay in a relationship if it's physically or sexually abusive? Jesus would never endorse making yourself a victim in that sort of scenario. He would never endorse that kind of nonsense. He would say, yes, you must forgive that person, but you must leave that person. And also, Jesus would never endorse stupidity like just forgive and forget. Like, if I invite someone to come over and babysit my children, 
and they abuse my children, I'm commanded by Jesus to forgive that person. But I'm not going to forget that. Like the next time I need a babysitter, I'm not calling that person. That would be foolish and stupid, and Jesus doesn't endorse that. What he is saying is that in relationships, you are going to be sinned against and offended an infinite number of times. And if you want a real shot at happiness or relationships, you must forgive an infinite number of times. And the reason why we kind of recoil from this and like try to think of scenarios to get out from under this is because we just know intuitively this is costly. Forgiveness is painful. It costs you something. And so that's the second big idea that I want to look at with you tonight. The cost of forgiveness. Look at this story. In verse 24, we learn about this king who has a servant that owes him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was a unit of money back then that was roughly the equivalent of 20 years of wages. So you think about 20 years of a salary. That's one talent. And this dude owes the king 10,000 talents which would be 200,000 years worth of salary. It's like a made-up number. Like People in Jesus' day and age would have thought, this is just such an absurdly big astronomical number. It's kind of like the way that we use the word gazillion. It's like it's just unheard of how big this is. So here's this dude that owes the king a gazillion dollars, and his point is it's so big it can never be paid off. You can never work 200,000 years to pay this off. So this guy is... Hopeless. He's screwed. But what he does, it's pretty funny if you look at verse 26, he comes up to the king and he says, give me time and I'll pay it off. And because it's such a ridiculous request and the guy's so delusional, the king, as you find out in verse 27, it says he has pity on him. He has pity on him and out of mercy, he cancels the debt. He forgives the man. He releases him of his debt. And what Jesus is showing you is that forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is fundamentally taking a debt of what somebody owes you and absorbing it in yourself and then promising that person that you're not going to make them pay for it. Uh, maybe think of it like this. When, when, my, when Catherine and I lived in Charlotte, we bought a house and it was in this old neighborhood and it had this huge front porch and the first day that we were there. Like we had moved in, like boxes were still in the house, like we'd been there for four seconds. And a neighbor, uh, uh, this, this woman came over with her three little boys, and they came over just to welcome us to the neighborhood. And the three little boys were kind of running around on our big, awesome front porch, and we're standing outside talking with her and kind of getting to know her and like figure out the lay of the land of the neighborhood. And one of these little boys accidentally pushes the other little boy through one of our windows in the front of our house. We'd been there four seconds, and now we have a broken window, screaming kid, blood everywhere, and like the most embarrassed sweet mom ever. And she's so apologetic. Oh my goodness, I'm so, so sorry, so, so sorry. What does forgiveness look like for me in this situation? Forgiveness would look like me saying to her, which I did, like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You know, essentially, I didn't say this, but I forgive you. But what I'm saying by that is, I'm not going to make you pay for that window. But the problem is I still have a broken window. So who pays for it? I do. That money now comes out of my account. 
Like the time to repair that window comes out of my schedule now. Like it's, it's cutting into my life. I'm absorbing the hit. And so when the king takes this servant and forgives him a gazillion dollars, he has taken a gazillion dollar hit to his bank account. It's enormously costly for him to say, I forgive you. I have mercy on you. I'm not going to make you pay for it. He's now out that much money. That's what forgiveness is. And that's how it works with relationships. When, when you're wounded or hurt in a relationship, there's a debt that gets created, a deficit. When your roommate won't pay their bills or won't pick up their clothes or their stuff, you feel a deficit of respect. When your parents are suffocating or overbearing or they've abandoned you, you feel a, you feel a deficit. You feel the wound. You feel the debt. And forgiveness then in relationships, when you look at somebody and say, I forgive you, you are promising to absorb the weight of that debt in yourself and promise to not make them pay for any of it. Which looks like you saying and believing, I'm not going to bring this up in the future as leverage over, over you. I, I'm not going to punish you to your face when I see you, and I'm not going to punish you behind your back. Like when I'm with my friends and your name gets brought up, I promise I'm not going to roll my eyes. And I'm not going to say comments like, well, if you only knew what I knew about this person. I promise I'm not going to keep score with you. And I promise that when your name gets brought up in my own head, I'm not going to marinate on how you've hurt me and how wonderful that makes me feel to make me feel better than you. When you say I forgive you, you're promising to get rid of all of that. I'll absorb it all. Earlier this year, I was preaching at a church not in this town, and I was preaching on a passage from Revelation 1, this crazy psychedelic image of Jesus where he has fire in his eyes and white hair and bronze feet, and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. It's like this crazy, awesome image. And I said from the pulpit, this is all highly symbolic. Jesus doesn't literally have a sword coming out of his face. And I went about my sermon and said amen and closed in prayer and went home for the day. Later that night, I got an email from someone in the congregation that was not happy with me. And they said, roughly, to paraphrase, Matt, you said in your sermon, Jesus does not have a sword coming out of his mouth when it says in the Bible that he does. You've contradicted the Bible from the pulpit. And in fact, my young children were present with me, and you've corrupted them. So much so that I'm so afraid that, I have, that I've had to come, that I've had to like, talk with them about other Bible stories to make sure they still believe in like, Noah's Ark and other things like that. Uh, will you please keep your heretical opinions to yourself? I mean, just ripped me to pieces over this. And on the one hand... I was really sad by this. I felt so like misrepresented and uh, like not given the benefit of the doubt. And on the other, like, and on the other hand, simultaneously, I was so angry. I was so offended. And my thought process was, this guy just got filed in the crazy category. Like he is what's wrong with the church legalistic, uptight, fundamentalistic, crazy, conservative, idiot people that don't understand the Bible. And so I, I mocked him. 
And I sent this email and forwarded it to my friends basically to laugh at him and ridicule him for how ridiculous of an email it was. And then I started drafting my response. I went to my office and I pulled out all of my commentaries on Revelation. And I, and, I, and I looked up all the places where all these academic scholars said, this is not to be taken literally, this is symbolic. And I wrote it down word for word, quoted it with the page number and just compiled this bibliography just to create this thermonuclear email to send his way to devastate him forever stepping up to me. <laughs> Thankfully, as I'm writing this, my wife kind of sees what I'm doing and kind of asks about it. And she's like, you cannot send that. You can't send that email. Why don't you take a few days and, like, chill? And so I did. And so uh, later that week, uh, I took a hike by myself up House Mountain and just kind of prayed. And I was praying through the Lord's Prayer. And I got to that part in the Lord's Prayer where um, he says, um, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I was thinking, I really hope that doesn't mean God forgive me to the same level with which I'm forgiving other people. Because then you wouldn't forgive me. And I was, I, mean, I was so convicted. So convicted over how fragile my self-image was. One little email, one little critique, and I turned into this monster. So angry, so defensive. To forgive that person which I prayed, Lord, help me to forgive that person because I don't want to. To forgive that person cost me something. It cost me that delicious feeling of I'm better than you. I'm not crazy like you are. It would, it would force me to have to release that, release that power because it feels good to be angry at people. And it would force me to release that. In fact, to forgive him would cost me, it would force me to have to start doing business with my own heart to have to start coming to terms with, I'm what's wrong with the church. This reaction is the problem. I'm murderously angry. I'm so defensive. I had to come to terms with who I am. That's why we don't want to do forgiveness. It's hard. It's costly. You don't want to do it. Why would anyone volunteer to suffer for the very person that hurt you? Who would consciously, deliberately choose to suffer for someone that hurt you. Where do you get the power to do this? Well, that's the last thing I want to look at. Where we get the power for forgiveness. If you go back to the parable, here's this man that was just forgiven this unimaginable amount of money, gazillion dollars. And he turns around and discovers that he has a servant that owes him a hundred denarii. Denarii. Denarius was one day's worth of wages. So 100 days, three and a half months of salary. Like That's a pretty good chunk of change. He finds out someone owes him three and a half months of money, and he goes bananas on the dude. He just screams and seizes him and chokes him and screams, give me what you owe me. And the guy says back to him almost verbatim what he said to the king. Just give me time and I'll pay it off. And he says, no. Throws him in prison. End of transaction. And the king overhears, you know, hears about this scenario. And the king is rightly outraged. And so he goes and gets servant A and has him thrown in prison where there are torturers. 
to pay off this debt of 200,000 years worth of money. So he's going to be thrown in this torture chamber for eternity. There's no way he's ever going to be able to pay this off. And here's where the kind of the razor comes out. The very last verse in this whole thing. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It sounds like Jesus is saying, if you won't forgive people, God's going to throw you in hell for eternity. It sounds like that's what Jesus is saying because that is what Jesus is saying. Now, what in the world do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, here's been a helpful way for me to think about this. Slapping. If you come up here on stage and slap me, which you may want to right now, I wouldn't blame you. If you came up on stage and slapped me right now, what would the consequences be for you? Nothing, really. Like, there would be no legal consequences. Y'all might laugh or it might be an awkward moment, but that would kind of be it for you. Now, if you went out and you did the same exact action and you slapped Chancellor Jimmy Cheek on the cheek and (laughs) smacked him on the cheek, what would happen then? What would the consequences be then? Uh, A lot more. You'd be arrested, my guess. Uh, You'd be kicked out of UT. Like, the consequences would be much bigger. Now, what if you went and tried to slap President Obama? My guess is, before you even could connect, Secret Service would just take you out with machine guns. Like, they wouldn't even hesitate. Like, for you to move aggressively towards the president, you're getting taken out on the spot. So, think about this. One action, one little action, slapping. But you move it up through this hierarchy of people that, are, that have importance and authority, with me at the bottom, and moving all the way up to President Obama, the consequences get bigger and bigger and bigger as you go. So what happens then when you slap God, someone who has infinite authority? One little white lie, one little offense against him, one little act of disobedience, one little, you've given me gifts, but I'm going to use it for my glory. One little thing, infinite consequences now. Because you're offending an infinite authority. Plus, every second of the day is intended for you to give glory to God, your creator. But we take every second and every breath and every heartbeat and we use it to glorify ourselves and honor us. And so who we're sinning against and the frequency with which we're sinning against, that creates an incalculable, astronomical infinite-sized debt. And because of this, and because it's so big, we can never pay it off. You and I can never pay it off. Christianity is the only religion, I will say, that looks at you and says, you can do nothing about your situation. No amount of church attendance, or coming to RUF, or reading the Bible, or praying, or giving away your money, or caring for the poor, or being nice, will make a dent And the size of this debt. The size of the debt is intended to crush you to the ground to the point where you're desperate and needy and you say, I give up. There's nothing I can do. What am I supposed to do? And you throw yourself at the mercy of the king. And the crazy reality of the gospel is that he gives you mercy when you do that. He forgives you when you come to him. When you have nothing to say, I can't do anything, he forgives you. At infinite cost to himself, he forgives you. 
how does he absorb that infinite debt? Where does he absorb that infinite debt? It's at the cross. At the cross, the eternal Son of God comes and bears the weight, the penalty of that infinite-sized debt. When you see his nails going through, when you see him suffocating and crying out, he's bearing the weight. He's absorbing in himself the weight of that debt so that he can look at you and say, I forgive you. And I'm holding you, I'm not holding any of this, I'm not holding you accountable for this anymore. I'm not going to make you pay for any of this anymore. I'm not going to snub you. I'm not going to be cold towards you. I'm not going to, I'm going to take all of your sins and throw it as far as the east is from the west. Your past, your present, and your future, all the ways that you have offended me, forgiven. Forgiven. Now, I know that the doctrine of hell is a big pill to swallow. But the Bible is saying that debt is so big, either you have to pay for it or Jesus pays for it on the cross. Someone's got to pay for it. It's either going to be you or it's going to be him. But the question I think that's more interesting is why in the world would Jesus pay this debt for me, for you? Who would ever volunteer for hell to sign up for this kind of costly suffering at infinite expense to himself for the very people that have hurt him. The only reason why anyone would ever do this is out of love. Out of love for you. And that's really where you get the power to begin forgiving people. When you see the size of your debt and the size of the payment, that's what gives you a clue of how much he loves you. And if that does not electroshock your heart into being a different person, if you're the kind of person that can look at that and then still look at your friends and nurse grudges and keep score and retaliate and snub people, then that just proves you haven't gotten the gospel yet. You haven't experienced his forgiveness. Your willingness to forgive other people is, in fact, one of the unique ways that I think you can tell whether or not you're a Christian. If you are willing to forgive, even though it's hard, you've tasted his grace. It's trickled down because what the basic point of what Jesus is saying in this parable is that forgiven people forgive. I'll end with this. I heard this story from a pastor in Seattle who said that there was this couple, this married couple that had been married for a number of years and the wife came to see him in his office. And she was uh, distressed and she was crying and she basically confessed to the pastor, when we were engaged, I had an affair with another man. I've never told my husband. And the pastor looked at her and said, you've got to tell him. It's time to come clean. You've got to tell him. So she goes home and now she's terrified because she's thinking, I've got to share this story. I've got to share this with him. And so I've got to, I've got to tell it. I've got to tell it in the right way. I can't just kind of drop this on him in the middle of you know, lunch. And so, uh, so she sets up this kind of evening for them to be together at home alone. And she kind of prepares this dinner and has candles. And she just kind of comes out with it and tells him. And he hears the news and he gets up from the table and he walks out of the house. And she just becomes undone. Just a basket case, a puddle on the floor of realizing I've just, I've just ended my marriage. My life is over as I know it. And about an hour later, he comes back in holding a box. And he takes her by the hand and he escorts her into the bedroom. And he opens up the box and it's this white like bathrobe. And he undresses her and he puts this white robe on her. And he says, when you come into this bedroom, I want you to wear this as a reminder 
that Jesus has taken your sin and he has cast it as far as the east is from the west and he has clothed you in the white righteousness of himself. And if that's how he relates to you, that's how I will relate to you. Now let me ask you, do you think his forgiveness of her made her love him more or less? When you experience the, scandalously lo- the scandalous love of God, when he sees you at your worst and does not run away from you but rather draws closer, when you see that and experience that, his forgiveness of you, that's where you get the power to forgive. Out of love for him, you can look at other people that have these smaller debts against you, and out of love for them, you can forgive. He has forgiven me this amount. I can forgive people this small amount. Two final thoughts and then we're done. Thought one. Some of you in this room are not forgiven by God right now. Where you feel that infinite weight of guilt and shame. And you would say in your heart of hearts, I don't think I'm right with God. Can I gently invite you to come to Jesus to feel his embrace, to have him take off all of that debt and throw it on himself and then throw his righteousness and his love around you. Jesus ready stands to save you. Come ye sinners to him. And the second thought that I would say, some of you in this room have felt the embrace of Jesus and would consider yourself a Christian. And yet there are people in your life that you have not forgiven. Who in your life have you not forgiven? Who in your life do you feel the stubborn anger towards? Would you please forgive them? May the glory of the gospel empower you to forgive those people. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it is cutting and it is hard and yet it is sweet. I pray, Father, um, for those of us in in this room that are just nursing a grudge, that are just holding on to something in anger, I pray that the sweetness of your gospel would erode that anger and melt their hearts as they're overwhelmed by the love that you have for them. Pray that they would release that sense of power and forgive their enemies, forgive those that have wounded them. And Father, I pray for those in this room that all of this is just kind of new and maybe even weird or offensive or crazy. Father, I pray that you would pierce through all of those layers of objection and skepticism and yet reach their heart in such a way that you would compel them and convince them that you are more beautiful and believable than we could ever comprehend. You meet us in our worst places and you shower us with grace. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you.